Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to our event on public opinion and war. In addition to the people who are here with us physically, uh, we'd like to welcome those watching online at Cato.org, as well as via C-SPAN. We always worry planning these events that a uh, topic that seems important and pressing a few months ahead of schedule uh, sometimes won't deliver, but unfortunately, I guess, uh, the question of public support for war uh, is quite salient uh, given present news. So what we're here today is to discuss a lot of the academic research on when and why the American public supports war. There's a lot of literature and a lot of disagreement in the literature on this subject. And to be totally honest, we were able to, to piggyback on the American Political Science Association annual meeting, since many of the uh, scholars who work on this subject were in town already. And I think we really have some of the most impressive scholarship represented on this panel uh, when it comes to the question of public support for war. I will go ahead and introduce the panelists in the order in which they'll speak uh, and then turn over the podium to the first speaker, who's John Mueller. Uh, he's a senior fellow at Cato, as well as a member of the Political Science Department and the Mershon Center at Ohio State University. For anybody who's read pretty much anything on the question of public opinion and war, he needs very little introduction, but I'll venture one nonetheless. In addition to his seminal work, War Presidents and Public Opinion, uh, he's more recently uh, made himself into an expert on both terrorism uh, and nuclear weapons, authoring most recently Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security, co-authored with Mark Stewart, as well as Overblown, How Politicians and the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them, and the atomic obsession, nuclear alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. He's published in really an impressive array of journals, International Security, the American Political Science Review, Security Studies, as well as popular journals like the American Interest, the National Interest, and Foreign Affairs. Um, we're very pleased uh, that John is here. He has an AB from the University of Chicago, and his PhD is from UCLA. The second speaker today is Jason Reifler, who's a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, he studies political behavior, public opinion about foreign policy, correcting factual misperceptions held by citizens, how it's done and when it works, as well as voting behavior. For our purposes here today, he is the co-author of Paying the Human Costs of War, American Public Opinion and Casualties in Military Conflicts, co-authored with Christopher Jelpe and Peter Fever. He has a BA from Colby College, and his PhD is from Duke University. Our third speaker today is Adam Borinsky, who is professor of political science at MIT, as well as serving as the director of the MIT Political Experiments Research Lab. He received his PhD from the University of Michigan in 2000, and for our purposes today, authored In Time of War, Understanding American Public Opinion from World War II to Iraq. Uh, he similarly has published in a very impressive array of journals, the American Journal of Political Science, Journal of Politics, Political Behavior, Public Opinion Quarterly, and a number of others. He's received grants from the National Science Foundation and was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study at the, in the Behavioral Sciences. Uh, the final speaker today uh, is 
perhaps Cato's newest minted adjunct scholar and an associate professor at George Mason University, Trevor Thrall. He works at George Mason in the Department of Public and International Affairs and is the director of the graduate program in biodefense. He is the co-editor of American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11, and another edited volume entitled, Why Did the United States Invade Iraq? Question mark. Prior to arriving at Mason, uh, Trevor was associate professor at the University of Michigan Dearborn, uh, where he directed the Master of Public Policy and Master of Public Administration programs. He received his PhD uh, from MIT. So you can see, normally on these panels, we have a lot of University of Chicago, MIT, uh, conspiracy. Today, it seems like we have a Michigan-MIT overlap with, of course, John uh, bringing up the Chicago end of the deal uh, to some extent. So I think with that uh, introduction of the speakers, I'll go ahead and turn things over to John Mueller to speak from the podium. Okay, thanks very much. It's nice to be here. Um, I'm going to change the order of things I'm uh, talking about because uh, I didn't realize I was going to be going first. Um, and I start with my, I've got basically three points I'd like to get put um, on the table, essentially, uh, 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 that fit into this. And uh, the first one basically is, the, is probably the most uh, um, uh, wide-ranging and sort of sets, sets the uh, overall uh, image. Um, these are, the, the United States has fought four wars, uh, long ground wars since World War II. And uh, it's possible to fairly well compare the degree to which these wars have been supported. Because the same poll question, do you think it was a mistake to have gotten involved in this conflict, um, has been asked in each, each of the, the four wars. Um, and the, uh, the patterns for the four wars are there. At the very top is Afghanistan. And as you can see, it's not going to be too easy to see. Uh, but the other three wars, uh, uh, Iraq, uh, Vietnam, and Korea are uh, down below. Uh, the main, main thing that basically happens on this is that there's been obviously a decline overall, and the part of the decline happens earlier rather than later. In other words, there's a fairly steep drop-off early on, typically, uh, and then sort of gradual erosion or even a, a stabling, uh, a, a reaching of, of stability. Um, the... Um, uh, I should say that there's a couple of things, one thing in particular that should be uh, kept in mind. These are years, as you can see, since the wars began. Uh, but it, uh, the, the key issue that's frequently brought up is the question of cost. The argument is that uh, as casualties accrue, the um, uh, support for the war uh, dwindles. Sometimes that's been put, um, as soon as they see the body bags coming back, they stop supporting the war. Uh, which has led, as far as I can see, to the military's idea that if they can't see the body bags, then they won't stop supporting the war. So we had this thing about not letting body bags get off at of Dover, uh, Delaware, and so forth, uh, it, uh, uh, sort of taking the metaphor and making it into something that approached reality, for, for some people at least. Um, at any rate, uh, my position mostly has been that as the war wears on, the casualties uh, uh, accrue and people make something resembling a cost-benefit analysis saying, but it's the war worth, uh, how much is it costing, and gradually they drop off. Uh, the other speakers, as you'll see, uh, don't necessarily agree with that uh, way of explaining it. Uh, the one, one issue, though, I do want to say before moving on here is that this, since this is by time, it isn't by casualties. Um, and a good question would be, uh, how fast does it go relative to, ca to a casualty increase? And at the war in, uh, comparing the war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq. Um, in the case of these two wars, there's a considerable difference. 
Uh, as you can see, uh, uh, both lines eventually go below 50% approval. But when they went below 50% approval for Afghanistan, there were about 2,000 Americans who had died, uh, for Iraq, rather, there had been about 2,000 Americans that had died. And when it went down below 50% approval for Vietnam, it was more like 20,000 or 18,000 Americans had died. My interpretation of this is that people were simply not willing to pay as much for the stakes in Iraq as they were for the Cold War wars. Um, okay, now, when you talk about casualties, everybody basically agrees people don't really know what the casualties are. And if you ask people how many, man, how many, men, how many people have been killed in Iraq, they'll get all kinds of weird answers and so forth. Um, however, um, uh, but, but the casualties basically, obviously, is a fairly good measure of the, how the uh, intensity, the cumulative casualties of, of the war, both in terms of human losses and, and uh, economically. However, there is some indication uh, from one question, which uh, fortuitously was asked before the, this recent war, before the, the Iraq war in 2002. The question is, you don't have to read the whole thing, but the, the basic idea was uh, George Bush might decide to send troops to Iraq. Do you approve of that? Um, and as you can see, 54% um, when they're asked, um, do you favor war, uh, said they would favor going to war. Then the next question was, um, if uh, suppose some Americans are killed, and suddenly the percentage favoring war dropped from 58% down to 49%. Um, and then uh, they were asked, what if 100 are killed? It dropped again, but only by three percentage points and, and farther down as it went along. Uh, so it does seem to be, even though I've certainly been saying from the beginning that people don't understand numbers very well, when you put it in this way, maybe they, they do. Uh, particularly interesting is the, uh, the question, would you still favor a war if 5,000 are killed? Uh, and as it happens, that question was asked when 5,000 or 4,000 were killed. Uh, and when, uh, in the first uh, section, as you can see, when 5,000 are killed, about 32% said they would still favor the war. And in actuality, when 4,000 or so American fatalities took place, it was 33. So maybe these numbers hold up a little bit better than, uh, than I have uh, previously thought. Um, this is the, uh, much clearer, obviously, because this is only one war, the war in Iraq. Um, and the thing, I, I don't want to spend too much time with it, but I think one thing that ought to be uh, put into consideration is sort of the, it, there's a decline and then sort of bumps and wiggles and sort of a stabilization of sorts. Um, one of the things that's uh, peculiar and one of the things I've been uh, interested in more lately is sort of the, the uh, unpredictability of American public opinion. Uh, and this gives you a bit of a consideration. I mean, you know, why do people do certain things? And then after the fact, you can sort of explain it, but it's extremely difficult to predict in the future. Uh, will they buy the hula hoop? Well, who knows? Well, it turns out they did. Will they buy the Edsel? There's a huge campaign to sell the Edsel. No. Will they buy new Coke? No. Um, and uh, as you can see, there's, there's ups and downs at various places, and they seem to be associated with things which variably relate to the war. For example, uh, Abu Ghraib, as you can see, there's a drop in support at the time of Abu Ghraib, uh, though then it bounced back to more or less where it was previously. Um, after the London bombings, there's a spike upwards. In other words, the terrorist attack in London caused support for the, seems to have caused support for the United States efforts in, Af in Iraq to go up. Uh, but it did not go up when the Madrid terrorist attack took place about uh, a year earlier. Uh, Katrina caused support for the war to go down, it seems. Uh, and the argument was basically, why do we have a bunch of soldiers in Iraq when they should be here helping Americans with that hurricane? Um, and one of the strangest things of all is basically there was a spike upward uh, at, uh, on the fifth anniversary of 9-11. 
it reminded people, obviously, what the war was about, but it was is not something you'd necessarily uh, overall predict. Um, okay, uh, the um, um, okay, the, uh, so that's that's the basic outline of the things we're going to be talking about, and the explanations are going to vary, as you're going to see. Uh, one thing I want to deal with, basically, is, however, can this be reversed? My position, basically, is that if I, I'm basically right about the, the way it happens, the mechanism, it's extremely unlikely you can get support to go back up. The reason for that, if I'm right, um, is that it, uh, Americans, uh, if, if you make a calculation, the war has cost too much. It ha isn't worth this. If the war then proceeds to go better, you still don't think the war is a good idea because you already said it wasn't worth the cost. And if it, even if it, so it's not a matter of whether you're winning or losing, but basically you reached a point where you say it wasn't worth it. Uh, it's basically like buying a car and paying four times more than it's worth. Um, and then these, uh, you may later come to like the car, think it's a pretty good car, but you still think you made a bad deal. So that would be sort of the approach. Um, now, one possibility, and we'll have this discussed, no doubt, uh, coming up, uh, is the issue of how many, uh, of what happens with, um, what happens if the war does go well? Um, and to, somewhat to my surprise, that actually happened. Um, in 2000, 2008, uh, there was the period of the surge, and the surge basically uh, caused people to think war was going better. Uh, 16 percentage points thought it's making things better, it's having no impact, went down, making significant progress, went up by 10 percentage points. Over that period of time, the United States is winning the war, went up by 16 percentage points. At the same time, however, uh, the support for the war didn't change much at all. Those who favored the war went, did not go, went, surged from 34 to 33. Has the war been worth it? Surged from 36 to 36. Uh, 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 war was the right decision, surged from 42 down to 39, um, and uh, should we stay there as long as it takes, uh, went from 26 to 26. Uh, and also, even approving Bush's handling of the war, you'd think that if people were now saying, hey, the war is going better, they would say, well, Bush is in charge of the war, so therefore he's, he should get more points for doing a good war, comparatively. Uh, that, didn't that didn't go up either. Okay, that's my, that's my first point, um, and let me go back to, I mean, there's no way to skip past this stuff except it going the hard way around. Um, the, uh, the issue uh, here is uh, uh, basically having to deal with uh, trying to sell ideas, to try to go to war, um, and the evidence seems to be pretty good that it's really hard to do so, to hard, it's hard to move public opinion. Um, overall, it seems to me, the way I look at uh, 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 basically marketing of ideas, People come up with ideas, and they try to sell them to the public, and the public buys them or doesn't. Most of the time, they don't buy it, just like they didn't buy the Edsel, just like they didn't buy the new Coke. Ninety percent of all new products, no matter how brilliantly marketed, fail, um, and 95 percent in high-tech, I understand. Uh, so consequently, people are out there, and people are putting things on the shelf. We should bomb Syria. We shouldn't bomb Syria. People then relate to it one way or the other and buy the argument, accept the argument. So it's not, if they do accept the argument, it means it struck a responsive chord, it seems to me. And so it's not clear whether they're being manipulated. They're simply being offered this, and it turns out it, it sells. But it's not easy to tell in advance whether that's going to happen. Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations uh, um, uh, of sort of how this uh, may be happening. Uh, it's possible to compare two things very fairly precisely. The run-up to the war in 19, uh, the first Gulf War um, that George Bush the first did in 1990, the war was in 1991, uh, and uh, beginning. Uh, this is the, this is a uh, uh, um, a trend line. There are a whole bunch of trend lines that follow the same basic pattern. 
uh, do, you, do you think we should go to war, essentially? Uh, and beginning in the middle of this, about where it says 1998.8, which is November 1990, the Bush administration really started to sell going to war. Uh, and uh, as you can see, basically nothing much happened. Um, it stayed pretty much the same as it had been before. Uh, the same thing happened for George Bush II's war in 2002 and, to, and into 2003. Um, the, um, the, the question that had been asked uh, for a long time, would you favor or oppose invading Iraq with US ground troops in an attempt to remove Saddam Hussein from power? Uh, before 9-11, um, the, uh, uh, the position basically was um, uh, very, uh, uh, was about 51% said that. It went up very high with 9-11. Uh, then came down and basically stayed pretty much the same all the rest of the way through. Now, what's interesting uh, uh, about this is that there was a huge partisan division. Uh, these are, I'm sorry, I should put those in. Um, and what happened in the first Gulf War was that there was an intense partisan leadership uh, split on whether the support should be used, for, whether people, we should go to war. Um, and for the second one, the Democratic Party uh, basically folded and accepted going to war. Uh, the vote was 52 to 47 in the Senate to go to war in the first war in 1991, uh, and 77 to 23 in the second one, indicating basically that the Democrats were now on the same side. Nonetheless, the partisan differences were much bigger uh, in the first war, in, in the second war, even though the Democratic leadership was saying, we, we want to go to war. Um, okay, let me turn finally to the end thing here. Um, getting past all the stuff I did before. Um, that's the, uh, uh, going too far and getting, these are all in one, okay, there we go. Um, let me, let me, I, I want to conclude with this point. Basically, the situation we're in now, um, it seems to me we're basically in a, with a war in Iraq. We're in a situation now of debacle. Everything the United States has fought for, died for, spent for trillions of dollars, 50, five or 6,000 lives. Uh, is gone down the tubes in the last year. Um, and so the question is basically, um, is, uh, you know, what's, what's the likely reaction to that to be? Um, it seems to me a useful comparison is with the previous debacle, which took place with Iran, I mean, with uh, Vietnam in 1975. Uh, in 1975, the communists took over South Vietnam, uh, completely obliterating the, the efforts of 55,000 dead Americans and the huge amount of money, et cetera, that spent on that war. Uh, everything went down the tubes over, over, virtually overnight in 55 days. And, and so the question, what was the public reaction to that? And I think there's some lessons that could, could have at least be potentially drawn, and the other people may want to comment on this, uh, from that lesson. It seems to be basically three lessons. Uh, first of all, uh, the Americans accepted the debacle with grandeur, with grace. Uh, basically, what they said, they shrugged it off. So, yeah, so what? Uh, in other words, there wasn't a huge amount of recriminations. Who lost Vietnam? You know, Joe McCarthy didn't rise again or anything else. They went on to other things. Um, secondly, they uh, wanted to continue the Cold War. They continued to support the basic idea of opposing communism, including uh, keeping a big defense budget going. And the big change was that they no longer wanted to use one tactic, which was ground war against it. Vietnam had demonstrated that that's a bad idea. Part of that was that they were willing to say, essentially, that um, I don't care if communism advances, 
I, I do care communist advances. I want to stop it from advancing, but I'm not willing to use ground war to stop it. Um, and if you have to use ground war, I prefer to let it advance. And indeed, communism did advance in several countries after the fall of Vietnam. Um, I think those three lessons probably hold today as well. Um, it seems to me very likely that the United States, American public, will be able to accept this debacle uh, with a fairly fair amount of good grace and go on to other things, shrug it off. I think that's most likely. Um, uh, and the other two things I also think hold. One is they're going to continue to support the war on terror uh, compared to the Cold War. In other words, they still want to do it, and there's been very little change in opinion about uh, uh, the war on terror since, since 2001, as far as I'm able to see. But they're not willing to use ground war to stop the advance of communism. And let me just conclude with two final uh, uh, cross-tabulations from uh, a poll, uh, the same poll. Uh, this question was, as a result of the recent violence in Iraq, do you think the threat of terrorism against the United States will increase, decrease, or stay the same? 44% of the people, this is just a couple months ago, said it will increase. So that's a bad thing. Everybody agrees that's a bad thing. Then the, uh, on the same poll, the question is, would you use ground force to stop it, essentially? And only 19% said they would. Uh, so consequently, it seems to me that there, the, uh, the same thing will happen. Even people are not willing to use ground war to stop the advance of terrorism. They're still opposed to it, just as they were opposed to communism and the advance of communism. But they, they've not changed their strategy, but they have changed their tactic, their willingness to use ground war as a technique for stopping it. Okay, let me end on that. Thanks for your attention. Great. I'm just going to turn on the clock here so I can keep track of how long I am. Uh, so thanks very much for inviting me to this. This is um, great. I lived in D.C. in the mid-90s, and um, this was always one of my favorite buildings architecturally from the outside. This is my first time inside Cato, so it's, it's fun to see the, um, the inside. Um, so in my uh, portion of the talk today, I'm going to try and make three um, main points. Uh, the first is... The, um, the view that uh, with my co-authors, Chris Jelpe and Peter Fever, of the importance of perceptions of success in shaping public support um, for willingness to use military force. Um, the second is to um, rebut some of the criticisms that have been made of our work, um, particularly with some of those that I think Adam is going to make following me. Um, and then third, to try and make the case in at least a modest way um, that citizens engage in some form of cost-benefits um, approach when thinking about decisions of, of um, using force. Um, and so in addition to that, one of the, the goals for today is to really try and maximize some of the difference um, in our um, different perspectives. Um, friends who sort of study things related to this area say, don't don't you all mostly more or less agree? Sure, maybe at some level, but it'll make a much better panel um, if we say we disagree a lot more. Um, and also, I think it, it's important um, to try and push each other to make the work as good as it possibly is. This is obviously a very 
substantively important topic, um, under what conditions will the public support military force? Um, and it's important that we understand it, and it's important that we, that we push each other really hard um, to, to try and make the work as, as good as it can. The, the half-life for any social research is probably fairly short anyway. Um, so it's worth um, discussing it um, sort of as, with as much friendly engagement um, as we can. Um, so it's hard to understate the importance of um, John Mueller's work in shaping this whole research um, agenda and what people look at and the importance of casualties in shaping um, public opinion about war. I, th I think, sadly, um, sort of inside the Beltway policy community has misinterpreted some of his work. Um, largely, the, um, the public will immediately oppose war um, once the body bags start coming home. I'm not exactly sure that's what his work um, says, but that became the conventional view and oftentimes was attached to him. There are several real difficulties in studying how casualties affect public opinion. The main way that we study public opinion, obviously, is through surveys. And when we want to measure how the public is, um, how they might be sensitive to casualties, one of the problems is that any given survey is typically conducted over a very short window, two, three, four days, so that everybody who is um, called or interviewed for that survey in some capacity basically experiences the same number of casualties um, that the war has seen at that point. There aren't dramatic, dramatic changes in casualty numbers that change from the first day of a survey to the third, fourth, or fifth day of a survey. So that leaves us, unfortunately, with several imperfect ways to measure how sensitive the public is to casualties. One, we can try and use aggregate data, so that as we can take overall poll results, support for a particular mission, and there are a variety of different questions that we could use, and then we could try and uh, see how support may decrease over time as casualties increase. One problem with that is that that's perfectly correlated with time. Casualties, unfortunately, can't go down, and time can't go backwards. So we're stuck with always observing increasing casualties at the same time that we're observing increases in the amount of time of a conflict. Another approach is to um, ask people a variety of questions in a given survey. And this is what my co-authors and I do, um, among other things. And then we use a question very similar to the one that uh, John presented um, from the LA Times in, in 2002, in which how does the public respond to, if you tell them, would you still support it if there were this many casualties? Um, and so that's problematic because people may not be able to experience those casualties. They may not know under what conditions those casualties were um, experienced. Um, one of the main criticisms that Adam will make is that um, if we use this as our measure of war support and measuring sensitivity to casualties, that it's very possible that that measure of measuring, uh, your ability to measure sensitivity to casualties is going to be endogenous to overall war support already. So it's a difficult measure. 
The third approach would be to use experiments, which is similar to this approach, and give people similarly worded questions about scenarios in which the United States might use force or other countries might use force, and change the number of casualties involved and see how that changes um, support. But those end up having to be hypothetical missions. And so we aren't necessarily tied into real world scenarios like what should the United States do um, in Iraq right at this moment and how would the public um, respond. So we have a substantively important problem with a very difficult measurement um, problem. So the work that I've done with uh, Chris Jelpe and Peter Fever, and I keep mentioning them in the hopes that some of the hate mail um, that we will generate uh, will go to them and not just to me. Um, Peter was on a different panel that was um, televised by C-SPAN this morning, and he showed me the death threat email that he's received since then. So Chris and Peter, if you want to send a death threat, send it to them, not me. Um, so the, one of the really important themes of our work is the importance of success. And that we argue that people are much more likely to support missions that will be successful. Um, and that a consequence of this is that people are willing to tolerate even extremely large numbers of casualties for a successful mission and are unwilling to tolerate um, even small numbers of casualties for missions that they think will not be successful. Um, and so I th one of the things I think is, is particularly important about this is that um, the extent to which people pay attention um, to uh, wars and conflicts that embedded in this is an assumption or um, that people are able to have some sense of what's going on about the world or how the, the progress uh, of a war is proceeding. And this is, I think, another major point of difference between uh, my work and, I think, in particular, um, Adam's work. Uh, in addition, we think this is perfectly consistent with an overall costs and benefits approach. One way to think about it is you have costs of war, you have benefits of war, and that we should probably discount the potential benefits of war by the probability of success. And so if the prospect of success is really, really low, then whatever benefits that there may be from winning a war have to be discounted by that low probability um, of success. And so some other work that I've done with other co-authors uses a uh, famous in political science um, framework trying to measure this sort of cost and benefits approach, and uh, we find that it, that it works. Um, so now to address some of the common critiques of our work. Um, first is that our emphasis on the um, importance of perceptions of success um, is misguided because it relies on people being able to have unmediated um, knowledge of battlefield events, what's actually going on in the war. Um, I think to a large extent this is a straw man argument. There's nothing that we write um, that says that knowledge of the situation on the ground in a conflict 
has to be unmediated, um, or that it even necessarily has to be accurate. People can believe that a war will be successful and support it, even when evidence on the ground may suggest that it won't be, um, and vice versa. Um, another common critique is that success or perceptions of success are endogenous to support. That is, people who already support a war think it's going to be successful. People who oppose a war think that it's going to be unsuccessful. Um, I think this is a perfectly reasonable critique of some of our cross-sectional work. Um, but uh, we and others have shown in survey experiments where we um, systematically vary the likelihood of success in a mission, that we tell participants in our experiments that missions are likely to be more successful or less successful, and that those have very predictable effects um, in the extent to which people support um, the use of force. And then another common critique of our work is that well, what if casualties are simply the metric of success that people look at? That they measure a war based on how many casualties there are. And if there are lots of casualties, the war is inherently unsuccessful. And if there are few casualties, then the war is inherently um, successful. In the work that we've uh, done, we find that there's little evidence that this is the primary metric that people look to um, toward success. It doesn't, doesn't mean that it is never used, but um, it's, at a minimum, not the primary um, metric that uh, people use. So our core argument is that, that people are more willing to support missions when they think that they're going to be um, successful, and that successful missions, people will tolerate even large numbers of casualties, and that for unsuccessful missions, People will be opposed even when there are really small numbers of casualties. Um, and so one of the other sort of competing theories out there, um, again, from Adam, is that elite cues are really important in understanding public support, um, that the public responds to what elites tell them, and that these fall largely on partisan or group identification lines. Um, and I think that there are a few important areas where this theory um, could be pushed further and could be refined. That's the friendly way of saying I think that it's wrong. <clears throat> um, as I know, Adam will be uh, come up with a friendly way to say that he thinks that I am wrong. <laughs> Maybe not so friendly. We are friends when we are not doing something like this. Um, so one, it doesn't have a a terribly strong um, theory of which cues people attend to or why. Um, there are a number of cues out there that people could attend to. Um, it doesn't sufficiently separate um, the persuasive arguments that elites make in terms of supporting or opposing war versus just who says it. Um, it unfortunately doesn't explain um, democratic support for the Iraq war before the Iraq war very well, um, in that there is majority opposition to the Iraq war among Democrats prior to the uh, Iraq war in 2002, 2003. Yet all leading Democrats were 
either for it or at least tacitly not against it. Um, and then I think that the, the most troubling aspect or the area where I sort of would like to see it push the most is um, that it doesn't tell us that much about elite level decision making. So one of the nice things about theory of perceptions of success um, is that it also might give us some insight into how political elites and military planners think about war. Um, it seems to me not unreasonable to think that um, those in the military would be resistant to missions that they think are, and political leaders to missions that they think are going to be unsuccessful and more supportive of missions that they think are going to be successful. Um, whereas an elite Q um, theory doesn't give us any potential insight into the main reasons why um, elites are supporting or opposing um, particular uh, missions um, and the use of force. And I have exceeded my allotted time already by about three minutes, and that felt super fast. <clears throat> All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, great, and thanks. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's great being here. I've been on different panels through the years with both John and Jason, and so we've had this, these, uh, these kinds of back and forth before. It's really nice to, as Jason said, that um, we are generally friendly, and so this is, is good. Um, before I begin, I just want to say, because I think we're on C-SPAN, if my kids are watching, I want to say hi, and <laughs> get your hands off each other. <laughs> Excellent, good. So I want to start with a story, uh, and this actually gets to something that Jason concluded his presentation with, um, and it's a story told in quotes here. Uh, so we have two parties, party A and party B. We won't call them what they are. Uh, but the party A is the party of the president, president who at this moment of the debate in the Senate is considering intervention in a foreign country. And party A, uh, I'm sorry, party A is, is the opposition to the president, making uh, particular arguments. Again, we're talking about the quality of the arguments here that Jason was saying, not just who's saying it, but what they're saying. Uh, Americans are going to be killed. They're going to come home in body bags and be killed in a war that Congress has not declared. Second senator says, I'm afraid we might be starting something here we can't get out of. I'm afraid we might be here for years and years and years. Uh, but party B, the party of the president, expresses support for the president's position, saying we should have an intervention, and said, well, I know some of my colleagues believe strongly that the administration has not articulated forcefully consistently and clearly the missions and goals of this use of force. We cannot let these kinds of atrocities and humanitarian disasters continue if we have in our power to stop them. I believe it's our duty to act. And as a scholar of public opinion, I'm very interested in how does the mass public respond to these kinds of contrary arguments? And we can see generally the public falls behind their particular leaders. A uh, question asked uh, uh, at the same time in this debate, Considering everything, do you think the U.S. did the right thing in getting involved in military conflict? Do you think it was a mistake? Uh, party A, 46% says it's the right thing. Party B, party of the president, says 66% say it's the right thing. So this sounds very much like the rhetoric, the kinds of arguments that were marshaled uh, before the Iraq war and the reaction, as uh, John showed us, this partisan split after the Iraq war. But this isn't the Iraq war. This is the spring of 1999. And we're talking about Kosovo, right? So the party of opposition of Republicans, uh, party B, the party supporting the president, uh, right? Noted hawk, uh, Paul Wellstone, 
Uh, and here we have these kinds of arguments here that were marshaled, as we saw in the Iraq war, were also marshaled in support of the Kosovo intervention, but by the different parties, right? So this kind of gets at what Jason was saying, that yes, we do need to consider in theory the kinds of arguments that people are making, but the argument I make in my book is if we just look at who says it, not what they say uh, or how they say it, just who is taking the position, who's supporting the war, who's opposing us, that can get us to explaining the majority of support for war. Um, so in my book, the central argument I'm making is that what we learned in about 60, 75 years of study of American public opinion can and should be applied to foreign policy as well, not just about domestic politics. That opinion about war is just like opinion about domestic politics. Now, there's room for dramatic events, where right? I'm not saying that events don't matter at all. Think about Pearl Harbor 9-11. These can change. Uh, opinion, but contrary to the conventional wisdom, uh, public opinion during times of crisis is shaped by some of the same attachments we see in the domestic stage. Uh, now, I want to spend most of my time uh, talking about my argument. I've brought in some slides. I'm happy to talk. I think it'd be great afterwards to have a back and forth. But I just want to spend the rest of my time making the argument I make in my book here. Um, and so it's a pretty simple one, right, that public opinion is primarily structured by the ebb and flow of partisan and group-based political conflict. Now, in my book, I talk a lot about World War II. I talk about the role of ethnic attachments there, but I want to focus here on partisan attachments, Democrats and Republicans. And I argue that citizens understand war not through a cost-benefit analysis, so I think here is where I do differ uh, from John and Jason, but through opinion ingredients, right, the kinds of things that go through people's heads that are more close to home. Partisanship and attachments to particular political leaders are the driving force of public opinion about war. So opinion about war is not willy-nilly. There was a time in American politics where we talked about sort of a plastic, uh, a mood of public opinion shifting to and fro. We're not saying that. There is a structure, but it's a very simple one. It follows partisan conflict. Um, and so I call this my elite cue theory. Um, so citizens take cues from partisan elites, from political leaders. Uh, I'd say that information matters, right? So People need to know where leaders stand in order to take cues from them, right? So that if you want to know, let's say that you're a Republican, uh, you want to take cues from party leadership, you need to have some attention uh, to politics. You need to be paying some attention to know who stands where on which issue. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, and that these cues, I think, can be negative or positive. So something both John and Jason brought up is basically how can we explain democratic opposition to the Iraq war when... Democratic politicians were largely silent. Uh, and so in the book, I argue that polarization, right, this difference between the parties, can occur even in the absence of vocal opposition uh, if cue givers take strong and distinct positions. Right? So think about in the case of the Iraq War, George Bush. Um, so I live now in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, and I can tell you from experience talking to my friends, George Bush was a very strong cue giver in those cases. Uh, if people, uh, if George Bush liked something, according to many of the people I grew up with, it had to be wrong. And I think you can see this. So that you don't need to have Democrats saying this is a bad war. You just have to have people, especially in the wake of, um, you know, think about George Bush uh, in the 2000 election, that it's something that basically for majority of Democrats, anything that George Bush was for, they were against. So one of my favorite things, there's a great book by Gary Jacobson uh, looking at 
at uh, polarization in American politics. And there's a question that says, is George Bush a uniter or a divider that was asked right after the 2000 election? And it's often quoted because 50% said he was a uniter, 50% said he's a divider. If you look among Democrats, about 80% said that he was a divider. Among Republicans, 80% said he was a uniter. So really, where you stand depends on where you sit. And I think that that's, that's a, a driving force here. And we can see this in public opinion. Um, so John told you about the split in partisan public opinion. And this is where right through the end of 2008, which is when I stopped writing the book, and I haven't updated this since then. Um, but it's more the same. Uh, just that there's no happy ending where everyone comes together. You can see throughout the Iraq war, you had huge partisan gaps um, you know, that support ebbs and flows, but that partisan gap remains strong. And so this is kind of one thing. And just show, here's a very simple way to show the impact of partisanship. I also want to show it a little more subtly. So remember I said that information matters, right? How much attention people pay to politics matters. So what I do in my book and what others have done before me, most notably John Zoller, is to look at what happens if we compare Republicans who pay a lot of attention to politics to Democrats who pay a lot of attention to politics. These are the people who should be most divided. If you don't pay attention to politics, you're not really sure uh, even though you call yourself a Democrat, maybe you don't know where the Democrats stand. If you're a Republican, you don't know where the Republicans stand. We should see smaller gaps. So John Zellery, in really probably the seminal piece of public opinion work in the last 25 years, um, I want to draw this is a very high-tech graph that you can see here. Um, I want to kind of draw your to this bottom here. This is the first Iraq war. Uh, and then this is the percent who say that Congress should approve military action against Iraq. This is right before the, the war starts. You can see among the people at the lowest level of political awareness here on the far left, these are people who don't pay any attention to politics. No differences between Republicans and Democrats. But if we look at the, the highly informed, the people who pay the most attention, we see large splits, right? And so I want you to kind of take this visual frame here, divergence versus uh, here, this middle graph, uh, which is um, right before, in, in October, when Democrats, so you, you might, I remember, probably not everyone in this room remembers, uh, before the 1990 election, there was a delicate dance where Democrats didn't want to say they were opposed to the war in advance of the 1990 midterm election. So here you can see convergence, right? There's still differences between Republicans and Democrats, but the more attention you pay to politics, the more likely you are to support war. So kind of visually, convergence, divergence. Um, if we look at the Iraq war, so this is one of many graphs I have in the book, I'm going to spare you the, the whole span, is we see divergence. Now, in the book, I talk not just about Iraq, uh, but I spend a lot of time talking about World War II, because uh, there was a lot of polling done during World War II that was largely unexamined for many years. Um, actually, when I was doing the, the research for my book, the only person who mentioned these polls, actually John's book, had a nice... Uh, section talking about these, uh, these old polls. But you'd think that in, in all the vast literature on public opinion and war, uh, people would have looked at World War II, which uh, you know, I wasn't around for that, but I'm told it was an important war. Um, but luckily for me, they didn't, so I was able to write this book. Um, so uh, with a colleague, Eric Schickler at Berkeley, we resuscitated a lot of these opinion polls that hadn't been looked at for many years. I just want to show you a couple things um, that, again, sort of support this theory about elite cues, convergence and divergence. Um, so let me show you one thing here um, to show you that even before the war, so there's this, this notion that before US entry, uh, before Pearl Harbor, 
Uh, the public was strongly opposed to war. So if you ask, should we declare war? Indeed, lots of people said no. But if you actually ask the question that was relevant at the time, uh, do you think that we should help England or stay out of the war? What's more important, to stay out of the war or to help England? Uh, you can see steadily increasing support for this position. And this was especially true among Democrats, as I, as I show in the book. Um, and so looking at this, looking at this convergence versus divergence, we would expect before entry in World War II that Democrats who paid more attention to politics, people who supported FDR, would be more likely to endorse his position. People who opposed FDR would be less likely. Uh, and I'm going to skip ahead here. This is just to show that, indeed, if you looked at politicians in Congress were talking about it, you saw a divergence uh, before World War II, uh, I'm sorry, before Pearl Harbor, between Democrats and Republicans, and then after Pearl Harbor, there's a convergence in how political elites were talking about that. And again, we see this reflected in the public. Uh, so here's a number of questions that were asked, uh, various uh, measures of support for intervention. Uh, in November 1939, do you approve of changes to the neutrality law? You can see supporters of FDR, the blue line, the more attention you pay to politics, the more likely you are to support this position. Among Republicans, less likely, right? people who opposed FDR. Uh, same thing in this, this question, is it more important to help England or stay out of the war? Republicans are flat. Uh, supporters of FDR are increasing in support. And we see this through, uh, through mid-1941. Um, you know, should we let Germany keep land in exchange for peace? Supporters of FDR, more informed, more engaged you are, the more likely you are to support that position. Now, this changed after Pearl Harbor. Uh, but we see it not just in the mean levels of support among Republicans and Democrats. We can see this in the, in the, divergent, in the convergence of opinion. Now, one interesting thing about World War II is um, the kinds of support questions that John mentioned about the mistake. Was it a mistake to get involved? They're so familiar to us. This question was never asked after US entry into World War II. The closest that came was, uh, in 20 years, do you think other people will think it was a mistake to get to enter the war? Which I think is in, in, in part a sign of the high level of support that there was for World War II, that basically pollsters weren't asking the kinds of questions that we ask today because they didn't think that there would be differences. Uh, however, there were questions about that sort of indirectly got at the, uh, the state US position of unconditional surrender. Um, so a bunch of times asked, you know, would you support peace, making peace with the German army? Uh, sometimes this is asked, would you support making peace with Hitler? Um, not surprisingly, if you ask about making peace with the German army, more popular than making peace with Hitler. But you can see, even if you ask about the German army, the mean levels of support are very high. But the key point I want to make here is that this pattern of convergence that we saw, right, where we get the same messages, uh, we can see. So after US entry into Pearl Harbor, right, if you could remember in this graph, we see convergence of how political elites, how politicians are talking about that. We also see that in the mass public as well. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, now, we don't see this more generally. So this is, this is uh, uh, one of my favorite questions. So is it more important to work with business or take care of people? Um, right, because as we know, the, these are the divergent goals, right? It's one or the other. Um, but if we take that premise, uh, which maybe we don't want to do in this building, right, is um, you can see that you do see divergence. So it's not this great big happy family where everyone comes together and says, oh, we need to be here. We still see where you have divergent rhetoric, 
you still have divergent opinion. I think that that's really important. Okay, let me skip this. Um, so, you know, let me also address something that was, was uh, in conclusion that was raised uh, most directly by Jason, but I think by John as well, is, is uh, what do I not deal with in the book? Um, so my book is about 320 pages, which my publisher said was too long as is. Um, but it is a tricky, so there are things I don't deal with. And I, I think that this is an important thing is, well, what determines the flow of elite discourse? So I treat it as something that we would call politically sort of exogenous to the system. It's just given. Um, but the question, it's an important one, is how do elites decide on their positions? Um, and so we think about what are the conditions under which elites remain unified? And so what I sort of say in my conclusion, that's nice where I can make arguments without evidence, is uh, perhaps arguments have been made about the mass public. Uh, think about aversion to casualties, cost-benefit analysis. These make sense applied to political elites. Right? This is their job. Right? So, you know, as a scholar of public opinion, I know that most people, most of the time, don't pay attention to politics. You know, so if people are rationally ignorant about politics, politicians uh, are not rationally ignorant because it's their job to pay attention to politics, to make these kinds of decisions. So we could see this. And there is some hint and some work done by Scott Gartner, uh, among others, that show that variation in casualties during the Vietnam War affected the position that senators took on the war. Right? So there's something there. So you know, we could say, well, doesn't this just mean that it doesn't matter, right? If, if elites are doing this, isn't that good enough? And I think, though, that there, is, there are some important normative questions that this, uh, that this leaves aside. Um, a thing about domestic and international politics. Uh, so Danny Ryder and Al Stam have a, a book where they argue that democracies are hesitant to enter a war. Uh, and they only become involved in wars that they are likely to win. Okay, so this is, they show this observationally. You see this throughout history. Uh, but the mechanism for that is really important. So they say it's casualty sensitivity. They say that, that leaders are worried that the mass public is going to react poorly to casualties. Um, but if, if the mechanism in, is, in fact, through elites, right, if elites are the ones making these decisions, they have the agency and flexibility to interpret the meaning of ambiguous wartime events. Right? So think about the surge. Right? A lot more troops go in. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? There's a lot more potential there for elite, I wouldn't say elite manipulation, but uh, elite manipulation of that potential reality. Um, it's how the war gets filtered through domestic politics that matters most, right? So if individuals are the ones, individual citizens are the ones doing the cost-benefit analysis, if individual citizens are the ones looking at casualties, then democracy is on a good ground, right? If leaders choose policies that lead to bad results, where the costs outweigh the benefits, the public will sanction them, right? The public will kick them out of office, uh, or at least say that they don't support wars. Um, however, if it's the elites that are making these calculations, we're in a much more fuzzy world, right? Where it could be that the public is the one that, that's uh, misled here. So I think that the stakes really are important. And I think, as Jason said, there's some potential there for some future work. Um, and like I said, I have some, I have some other slides about, that I can bring on sort of tag, but I just wanted to sort of lay out my position and then looking forward to some more discussions about that. Thanks. 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 All right, welcome everybody. Um, Justin, thanks for the invitation to be here. Um, great discussion already. Um, start with a quiz. Uh, how many of you have ever written out a pro-con list? Don't be shy. OK. Um, 
you know, maybe you were trying to make a tough decision like, you know, whether to take a new job or ask your girlfriend to the prom, um, you know, which house to buy, that sort of thing. And the idea behind the pro-con list is that it's supposed to help structure your thinking and make sure that you've considered all the possibilities, all the consequences, and that you make the best, most rational decision you can with the information at your disposal. But if you're like me, uh, you write down this nice long list of pros and cons, you stare at it for a while, and eventually you realize that it's absolutely no help at all. Right? And you might even wind up more confused than when you started. Anyone ever? Yeah, we've all had that. Um, and it's, the reason is not because you can't think of any pros and cons. Right? You have a whole list of pros and cons. Uh, the reason you can't make up your mind is because you don't have a good reason, right? A good reason for option A or B. And this is actually obvious if you think about it because you never bother making pro-con lists when you already know what you think, right? When uh, people with good reasons don't make pro-con lists, right? When you're crazy in love with a girl or when you know it's time to move to the big city, you don't sit around and quickly make a pro-con list to see if you're making the right decision, right? Um, and I think this is pretty interesting when we're just talking about your love life, uh, but it gets trickier when we start talking about foreign policy opinions, right? The first problem people face when trying to come up with an opinion about a war like Iraq is um, just like your typical pro-con list, there are a lot of potential reasons on both sides of the coin, right? Um, but forming opinions about war is even more complicated because beyond that, all these reasons are very difficult to compare, right? A lot of apples and oranges on the list. And even worse, the information you need to assess each of these reasons is itself pretty complicated, often missing or kind of sketchy, right? And so given that, the brain power and the time it would take you to consider this pro-con list in all its glory is staggering. I mean, people actually get paid to do that full time. Yeah? So I think some people might be willing to spend that much time thinking about who to marry, but not about the war in Iraq. Okay? Nonetheless, I think as you have heard already today, at least a couple of people um, think that the public approaches the problem of coming up with an opinion about war in a manner more or less consistent with the pro-con list model. And I won't quote uh, Jason and, and, and uh, his colleagues from before, but you know, essentially, uh, you weigh the pros and cons, and you say, OK, about a 50% chance, and you come up with an opinion. Um, my co-author, Andrew Armstrong, who is here in the audience with us today, uh, and I don't think that people actually use this sort of idealized model to come up with opinions. And instead, we argue that people uh, rely on one good reason to support wars and foreign policies. Uh, by this, we mean that the acquisition and adoption of one good reason can serve to motivate and maintain an opinion in the face of potentially confounding considerations from all sorts of competing sources of information. It doesn't mean you might not agree with other reasons for something, but just that that single good reason is doing the heavy lifting, and it really doesn't need the others to help you figure out what to think. Now, I, on first glance, I, I hope that seems fairly provocative, um, but it, I think there's a good chance it also sounds a bit extreme. So at the risk of working against my own cause right up front, let me give you three reasons why we think one good reason is all you need. Um, first, the most fundamental reason uh, to suspect that people seize on one good reason is, uh, I think was mentioned briefly, humans are cognitive misers. Right? We're always looking uh, to cut corners when it comes to thinking hard. Uh, and if you've read Daniel Kahneman's excellent uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, you've had an excellent summary of a long line of research in this tradition. Uh, but in short, the search for and the maintenance of a single good reason is an awful lot easier on your brain than what would be required for you to continually update your thinking on a whole wide range of factors, especially because all of them are interdependent and interconnected. The second reason to suspect that one is the right number is that one resonates uh, more powerfully with our affective psychology 
than more complex logical inputs. You've probably heard the famous quote attributed to Stalin, when one man dies, it's a tragedy. When thousands die, it's statistics. I think he was right on. Research has shown, for example, that uh, people respond far more to in, uh, images of individual children uh, in need, for example, than they do to statistical appeals. Uh, and that people are willing to spend as much to save a single whale as they are to save all the whales. Right? Um, so more broadly, I think it's just the case that it's in our nature to treat the first or the best or the worst or the most extreme of a class of things very differently from the way we treat other things. Right? We remember them more easily. We give them more weight in our thinking, and we're more easily roused to action when presented with a single compelling, personal especially, reason to do something. And the third reason to suspect that one is the magic number is a large body of evidence about the powerful role that predispositions play in shaping opinions, and how often they seem to point people to one specific reason. People rely very heavily on things like party identification, moral views, religion, social identity, both to simplify the complex information environment they face and also as heuristics for opinion formation. I mean, how much more do people need to know than party ID to pick a president, right? How many people have religious beliefs that explicitly uh, give them a single good reason for their opinions, because God said so, right? Um, in many cases, the very nature of people's beliefs, in fact, requires that just one reason matter. Okay, if you're still with me, uh, the next question then would be, what does this fact that people gravitate towards one good reason tell us about opinion formation in the case of something like the Iraq War. Um, and to answer that, I think we first need to consider the fact that um, good reasons are not all created equal. Some good reasons are what we might call just good enough for now, uh, while others are so strong they're essentially bulletproof. Um, in addition, some reasons depend a lot on context, uh, while others don't depend on context at all. Now, contextual good reasons are those that depend on the specific facts of a situation for their goodness, right? A contextual good reason then can be strengthened or weakened um, or even abandoned as new information comes to light. For example, if I supported the war in Iraq because I was worried about the status of Iraq's WMD program, then my good reason probably got better after I saw Colin Powell's speech in early 2003, um, while later on it lost strength as we didn't uncover any evidence of Iraqi WMD. And eventually it might have lost so much oomph that it stopped being a good reason entirely, leading me potentially to consider changing my opinion about the war altogether. Fundamental reasons, on the other hand, are reasons rooted in moral views, right? Partisan loyalty or group identity, religion, and so on. And unlike contextual reasons, these fundamental reasons are not contingent on objective or observable criteria and changing conditions. So for example, we wouldn't expect a Quaker with a religious belief in pacifism to support a war no matter what the conditions, right? And this means that new information is unlikely to have much impact on these folks who have fundamental reasons. And so given all this, we expect sort of several things when we turn to um, think about public opinion about war and foreign policy. And just to keep on the topic of Iraq, since we're there, right, the first thing we would expect is really to see a, a patchwork quilt of good reasons, uh, both for and against the war, thanks to the interplay of, of people's predispositions and the context and information, all of which have been mentioned already and all of which matter a great deal. Um, you know, the bottom line is, People can support something, but for a very wide range of reasons. Unlike, I think, discussion so far where we focused on WMD, or, or maybe people talked about terrorism a lot with this topic. Um, you know, my wife and I, we both bought the minivan, but, but we did it for two very different reasons, right? She wanted the cup holders, and I wanted to make her happy. This is two very different reasons. So just like with minivans, right, both supporters and opponents of the war in Iraq had a, a, a very wide range of, of reasons for doing so. So if you look, for example, at poll questions that gave people a chance 
to come up with their own reasons, right, open-ended poll questions, we see a, a wide variety of, of reasons given. So in an ABC News poll on March 9th, 2003, uh, just 13% said the most important reason to support the war was Iraq's connection to terrorism, and just 16% mentioned WMD, and opponents really didn't mention either of the above. Right. So the second thing is that because wars, by their nature, engage very salient emotional, moral, and other deeply held values, we expect that the number of people who will find a fundamental reason to support or oppose a war is going to be relatively high. And given this, then, we expect to see a lot of consistency as opposed to change. Consistency in the opinions that people hold throughout the war. We spend a lot of time trying to explain opinion change, but here I'm thinking more about consistency. And I think in the case of Iraq, we see this very clearly. In two of Gallup's very often repeated poll questions, the mistake question and the general do you favor or oppose the invasion question, the lowest level of support the war has ever received to date is still 36%. Right? And the lowest opposition it ever had, even at its peak of popularity, was about 25%. Um, and our interpretation of these, I think, is pretty straightforward. Right? At the beginning of the war, you had a hardcore group of mostly conservatives who had fundamental good reasons to support the war and never wavered. <laughs> The other side of the spectrum, you had a hardcore group of mostly liberals, many of them in Adam's neighborhood, apparently, um, who opposed the war for fundamental reasons at the outset and never wavered. I come from one of those places, too. Um, so I know it's true. Um, and so that means, right, when you think about it, that as many as 60% of Americans never changed their mind once about what was going on in Iraq, um, which is more than Hillary Clinton and John Kerry can say. Um, so and I, again, I, I actually even find that surprising, thinking about this stuff a lot. I, I had never actually thought about it that way until recently. And the third thing is that we expect that the number of people holding a strong good reason, right, one that's really resistant to additional information, is going to grow over time as people encounter new information. Um, as Adam mentioned, many people, sadly, nobody here, uh, pay very little attention to foreign affairs. And so at the beginning of a war, a crisis, many people will have no reasons whatsoever to support or oppose a policy. But over time, they're going to learn more. Uh, and they'll be exposed to more potential good reasons. So people with no reasons to begin with will probably get one. People who had kind of eh good reasons will probably get better ones. And eventually, as one of John's charts showed, we eventually get to a point with every war of any length where opinions stop changing. Right? It doesn't matter what happens, and it doesn't matter what people are saying. At some point, we're done. Right? And our argument is that this is a function of the fact that by that point, people have pretty much all acquired a reason, a good reason, strong enough that it's essentially permanent. And in the case of Iraq, it happened a fairly long time ago at this point. And we've seen little mini perturbations, but not, nothing much to be uh, interested in. So one good reason. Could that really be possible? It probably sounds like a stretch. But I'll conclude by arguing from authority and quote John's uh, 1973 book, War Presidents and Public Opinion. Um, uh, and point out that John actually is making an argument that fits very neatly in this notion of one good reason. John's argument that he's been making for a long time now is that mounting casualties, no matter what your good reason for supporting the war was originally, eventually you will replace that good reason with too many casualties as the single good reason to oppose the war. Let, let me read from his book, actually, just briefly. Right? Here's what he says. Another way of looking at the trends is to see subgroups of the population dropping off sequentially from the war's support as casualties mount. In the early stages, the support of those with considerable misgivings is easily alienated. In later stages, the only advocates left are the relatively hardened supporters whose conversion to opposition proves to be more difficult. This quote articulates in a nutshell, thank you, John, um, 
how I see this one good reason model operating. My only issue that I would really take with it is that I don't think casualties are the only uh, thing that you could have that would uh, be another candidate uh, reason to turn against the war. Like disastrous uh, failures or uh, potentially elite cues could also do some of that work. Uh, but casualties is a pretty darn good reason, it seems to me. Um, so, you know, to just sort of wrap it up, we have a war. Some people, actually it turns out a majority possibly in this case, uh, start off with a fundamental good reason to oppose or support it, and they're done. That's it for them. Other people start off with a good reason that is of some kind of varying level of goodness, and some of those are weak enough that they collapse on first blood, first sign of trouble. Others, you know, it takes sort of a great deal of information to make clear that, that initial reason was actually not so good anymore. Um, and I'll end there in the interest of sticking to roughly 12 minutes, but before I sit down, I'll just put it uh, back out to you guys. What is your one good reason? Thank you. Thanks a lot for that, Trevor. If there are any uh, graduate students in the audience or watching on C-SPAN, you have just done what's called a lit review. You have covered uh, a broad swath of the literature on a subject and know a lot about it now. We have about 20 minutes left, and I know everyone is practically pawing the ground to get at one another on the panel up here. Um, but I think what I'll ask people to do is to take their responses and disputations and shoehorn them into answers to questions from the audience. Uh, we have a lot of smart people here uh, who I know would like to pick your brains. So if that, just as you hear questions, use those as jumping off points to uh, claw at each other's faces or uh, uh, whatever suits your fancy. So we'll open it now to questions. Um, we ask you to wait for a microphone, which would be brought around to you to identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and to please ask a short, pointed uh, question uh, to a member of the panel. How about the gentleman on the blue shirt on the aisle right there? My name is Joe Gillen. I'm a retired soldier and retired civil servant. Um, I just wonder if how the panel considers the, the impact of the transformation of the U.S. military from, an all, from a draftee base to an all-volunteer base. Conscription and its role on... Uh... Yeah, in terms of public opinion you're talking about? Yeah, there's a, a debate about that, and the other people, panelists may know more about it, but it, it seems to me it doesn't make much difference. Uh, the fact that volunteers are dying in Iraq, not uh, draftees, I don't think animates people any less than uh, if it were the other way around. So overall, I think it really doesn't seem to make much difference in terms of public response. The Americans are dying. They may have volunteered to go there, but no one says, well, you know, they asked for it. I mean, and no one says that. Uh, and so I, I don't really think it makes very much difference in, in terms of public support. Anyone else in conscription? No, looks like no. Um, let's go to the other gentleman in the other blue shirt on the other aisle. <laughs> I don't project that well, thanks. I'm Jim Hessick. I'm from the Atlantic Council. I'm also a graduate student at the University of Texas in public policy. Uh, I want to follow up on that question about, about conscription because I've had the sense that that might have been different in Europe in decades past and there are still a handful of European countries that, that um, conscript. Uh, across borders, this is different. Do we have the sense that, that uh, sen sentiment for war in European countries is lower amongst those that have conscripted? Overseas adventures, let's put it that way, is lower in countries where there are large numbers of conscripts in the armed forces. 
Yeah. As far as I, I, I don't, I don't know of any particularly. I mean, if a Swede dies, I think the Swedes be equally outraged whether he's a volunteer or a or a, or a draftee uh, or a Canadian or something. I don't think, I, as far as I know, it's not the case. All right. Uh, what about the gentleman in the back in the dark blazer? And yes, you just turned around. Yes. Uh, Robert Shredder with International Investor. We have another theory, I'll be, I'll be very quick, we call it the Red Cape Theory, that every once in a while there's a media event that seems to elicit uh, revenge or the, the feeling of revenge. We just saw one with the execution of a journalist, for example, but there's been other cases, keynote stories that appear, appear in the press that seem to really provoke uh, anger on the part of the American public. Do any of you feel that there are those kind of incidents which uh, trigger a change in public sentiment? John, please. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm the events guy, whereas the rest of the panels are not so much. Um, uh, yes, it can be. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen, though, because frequently things simply get shrugged off. Uh, as I mentioned, in, in the, looking at the uh, support for the war in Iraq, there were certain events like Abu Ghraib, which caused a huge flurry and so forth, um, and did cause opinion to change, but then it sort of went back to where it was before. Uh, there's good news for the standpoint of the supporting the war, namely elections that seem to go quite well in Iraq. People then supported the war a bit more, but soon it was back down. So frequently they're not uh, game changers. Uh, they're, they're, they tend to be blips. There's some events like 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, though, that I think really are anything but blips. So that, uh, you know, opinion on 9-11 still continues to resonate uh, very strongly, as did Pearl Harbor all the way through the war and even after the war. If I may piggyback on that, in in addition, um, another person who's written a lot about war and public opinion who's not on this panel, um, Peter Lieberman, um, has argued that um, fundamentally support for war is based on retributiveness, so punishing people who deserve to be punished for their morally bad acts. Um, and in some sense, that's probably fairly consistent with the big red letters of Saddam is a bad guy. Um, that that Trevor had in his slide. Uh, what about the gentleman right here in the front, in the non-blue shirt? Yeah. <laughs> Branching out. Afternoon, Martin Moulton. I'm DC Libertarian candidate on the ballot in November. Um, for the panel, and Mr. Mueller, um, what do you think of Judge Hellerstein's opinion uh, about the release of the Abu Ghraib photos, and whether that was done to protect people overseas or shape public opinion, uh, or affect public opinion at home when it was yeah i don't i don't know the motive i mean the motivations of why the photos were released and so forth well the anti-war people thought you know this fed right into their argument about the obscenity of the war etc uh but it, in terms of it i don't know if anyone's done a real study of the abu Ghraib revelations which were very stunning obviously at the time we all remember them they were very vivid they had pictures that were just horrible etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but the data, basically, as I showed, uh, seems to be that uh, it didn't, it temporarily, through the war, it, I mean, it didn't, it was a game changer in the sense that it, it caused people to think less well of the war, and then that just continued to down from there, basically bounced back up. Um, so the uh, events like that, even really horrible ones, uh, might be there. Uh, in, in the case of the uh, soldier who was, uh, the, the uh, journalist who just killed, 
I mean, you could consider that to be a fairly minor effect given the hor horrificness of this war. And so you get a war a, a, a event which is just, you know, one horrible thing happened to one single person, but it can gravitate. It can cause people really to, uh, to, to change their minds in some cases. And the gentleman right down here in the front. Need to find a lady with a question, too. Thank you. I'm Burt Wides. I'm a pro bono advocate, but I've wrestled with these issues for 60 years in this town. It's an excellent panel, starting with working on Mac with McNamara in Vietnam, working in Congress for two dozen years, and more recently working with people at Cato and getting out of Afghanistan. Uh, it's an excellent panel. There was some discussion about how people regard the wars afterwards or might react afterwards. And I wanted to ask Mr. Miller and Mr. Berinsky your reaction to the following. I've been at countless discussions, strategy sessions of liberals about getting out of Afghanistan who keep emphasizing that they have to explain to Congress that the public opinions polls show the majority want us to get out. And I try to explain to them that the people in Congress read the same newspapers, but know that if they do get out, if we do get out and things go south, an opponent can run against them as having voted in a way that we lost the war. And in terms of your research vis-a-vis -vis how Congress reacts to public opinion, I want to know what your thoughts are. Yeah, Adam also might not be on. Um, I, I think it's sort of my last point, basically they're wrong. It is not going to be that there's going to be a who lost uh, Iraq syndrome. There's not going to be a rise another Joe McCarthy. Uh, it's not that they are going to be uh, 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 pilloried over this. Essentially, people are going to forget about it. They're already forgetting about it. They were, at least, forgetting about Iraq as fast as they could, just as they, they stopped thinking about Vietnam. So I think, I think they're wrong, basically, to think that there's going to be a big retribution. Uh, and furthermore, there's a, very good, there's a very good refutation to the refutation. You say, you lost Iraq. And then you say, okay, the only way to save Iraq is to send the troops back in. Are you willing to do that? we got 300 million Americans that don't want to do that. Are you in that group? Uh, that will tend to shut them up, I think, substantially. It's a very strong power argument. In other words, you can't, and the administration's already been using this a little bit with some, some, some of the issues, including the issue about Iran, bombing Iran and so forth. Do you really want to get into a war with Iran? And that has uh, worked to their benefit in terms of dampening some of the opposition. Adam, do you see yeah, politicians sort of, using this? I sort of jump in as well. Sort of, um, I think you raised a very good point, which is this question of how do politicians decide um, uh, sort of the positions to take? I said it's sort of the question I don't answer in my book, there's, but there's been some very good work done in international relations on this question of uh, thinking about latent opinion. You can think about why right? politicians wondering not about opinion today, but opinion come the next election. So if I do this, what is the public going to do? Uh, and there's a, a person, Elizabeth Saunders, who's at uh, George Washington, um, who's done some really, really interesting work in the context of Vietnam, because uh, typically this audience cost theory has been applied to the public. The politicians don't want to back down because they're worried about how the public is going to react. And uh, Saunders has done some really interesting work in the context of Vietnam, uh, showing that Johnson wasn't worried about the public. He was worried about politicians, so kind of opposition within the Democratic Party, their reactions. But uh, the fundamental issue here is that the politicians do worry about reactions, be it 
the mass public or other politicians to their actions, and it's going to constrain their actions moving forward. I think that's something that we need to spend more time thinking about. So I like Elizabeth's work because it says that it's elites, it's not the mass public, (laughs) but other people disagree. But there is a mechanism there that politicians thinking ahead, not looking at the opinion polls today, kind of the flip side of what I look like, what I looked at, which was how does the public react to elite positions? The question is how do elites incorporate these public opinion into their decisions? And that's more forward-looking. Nothing about opinion today, but what is opinion going to look like in six months, a year from now, if I take these particular actions? Can I add one thing to that? Please. Uh, yeah, uh, one one point that should be brought up, that, that however, uh, is the situation in Syria last summer. Um, uh, the elites, all of them, were in favor of bombing Syria because of the chemical attack. Uh, they went home and they found out that the their followers uh, were trying to say, "Are you trying to get us into another stupid war in the Middle East?" Uh, and uh, that's had a very powerful impact. Everybody now is no longer willing to talk about boots on the ground, even. John McCain he says, unfortunately, because of public opinion, we can't do this. So sometimes it can have very strong restraining effect. Um, and in this case, it's people, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, going against their main party. Because when, when Obama said he was going to bomb them, the party leaders on both sides in the, in the, in the uh, Congress uh, you know, said, go ahead, essentially. They, they would, at least at the top, there was unanimity among the elites. Um, and what they found is the people on the bottom uh, were not up to that. And to a degree, that's happened also in, in the Iraq War. Um, the, uh, what, what's happened is that the, uh, in many respects, this is the same as Adam saying, except the other way around. Uh, it's not that the cues, the elite cues are influencing the pop people, but the people are influencing the elite cues. Uh, what happened in 19, 2004 uh, was that um, the, uh, when they tried, uh, uh, they, there was a huge uh, movement to try to get out of the war in Iraq, coming burgeoning out of the out of the uh, Democratic Party, uh, and the Democratic Party leaders who had voted for the war didn't really want to talk about it. Uh, so, with the, the movement toward Howard Dean and then eventually John Kerry as sort of a stalking horse for an anti-war movement, it was not that the leaders were manipulating the people. The people were manipulating the at least the uh, main activists uh, and the uh, rank and file of that party were man- manipulating the leaders. That kept going on throughout the whole decade. Uh, and finally, the anti-war movement got the guy they wanted, Barack Obama. Turned out that didn't work out so well from their standpoint, but at least they got the only politician of any prominence who had actually opposed the war in Iraq into the White House. I wonder if, if Adam's response to that would be, it's, it's my relatives out in flyover country that see that Barack Obama wants to bomb Syria, and that's enough for them to know that it's a bad idea. <laughs> um, let's right there. Uh, not on the aisle. Yes, you, right there. Thank you. Leandra Bernstein, Ria Novosti. Uh, I find it very difficult to believe that public opinion shapes elites' uh, decisions to go to war uh, simply, uh, simply on the basis that Congress hasn't, hasn't officially declared war since, uh, I think it's World War II. Uh, there's increasing increasing trend to the president unilaterally getting us into war. So I, the premise of public, of public opinion shaping something like war, which should be based on strategy, not on opinion, uh, in, in my opinion, 
uh, it's it's just a little bit hard to believe. So if you could if if you could address address that, and also uh, we've seen uh, one of the speakers mentioned uh, circumstantial reasons uh, bec- uh, being put forward and used by the public to say, oh yes, well I support this or I don't support this, and if anyone could comment on the trend uh, in the creation. Uh, potentially fabrication of circumstantial reasons to get into a conflict, NATO versus Russia. So I think this raises a couple points. Salience, right? Is there any evidence that politicians ought to fear uh, what the public thinks and when? Uh, Consolidation of executive power. Can the president pound the table hard enough that he gets his folks to fall uh, into line? And then I'll leave it to you to jump off from there. Anyway. Yeah, we'll just make a few few points on that. One is that... um, we, we are seeing it now. Every politician is saying we can't have boots on the ground. Public opinion won't let us do that, et cetera. So they do feel constrained. At least that's what they say. It is the case that the president can do it anyway. He can bomb. He could have bombed in Syria and then waited to see what happened later. Uh, and the fear was it would, it would redound neg- negatively to him. Uh, in terms of the, the, the arguments they use, politicians are constantly trying to come up with arguments that will make you like them. Uh, and so consequently, they say, how about W? They, they poll to do it. How about, you know, Saddam will get WMD, and that, that polls well, so we'll put that argument. We won't push the argument about jobs because it doesn't poll. So consequently, they're trying to manipulate in that sense, and they're trying to come up with the arguments that can work best for their side. Uh, in other words, to a considerable degree, their, the response from the public uh, is influencing what they're doing. Uh, it, uh, and they're, they're doing it all the time. They're always going up, up in front of audience and saying, well, I'm against, uh, you know, I'm against immigration. People say, yeah, then, then, they, then, they, then they go on it. They say, I'm in favor of doing something with the drug, drug issue. And sometimes they get a big reaction and then they follow it. So the question is, who's manipulating whom? Uh, they are putting these things on the table just like the, um, uh, uh, you know, new Coke and saying if anybody buys it. Uh, and if it, no one buys it, then they go on to something else. Yeah, I'll just say, too, that, you know, um, having written some stuff about how dangerous presidents are in terms of inflating threats by manufacturing reasons, essentially, um, I think, you know, Iraq obviously got a lot of people worried about how easy it might be for a president just to lie about intelligence or something like that. But I think, you know, the chart that John showed earlier um, that charts public opinion before 2003 and 2002, Bush tried an awful lot of stuff that to convince you to go to war happily, and he failed miserably for the most part in doing that. Um, but but that doesn't mean presidents aren't dangerous, but it just means that their words aren't very dangerous, I don't think. Uh, it's their actions that are dangerous in terms of increasing public support for war. Because if we look back at both the Gulf War and we look at the Iraq War, the big bump in opinion is not when the president says, let's go to war, it's when he goes to war. Right? It's when you send 500,000 troops to the Gulf. It's when you, you, know, you give someone an ultimatum. Th- those things have real power to move opinion. Um, but words, as John pointed out, I mean, we're in a constant marketplace of ideas battling back and forth. And so when people are paying attention, you already have kind of a, a polarized mindset. It's very hard for presidents to, to say anything to convince the other team to support something. But when they do stuff that engages U.S. troops, then the story is very different. Let's, let's, we'll take another question. Oh, Bush? Yeah, Bush barely survived the first term. He barely won that election, which is really impressive given how huge, if he hadn't done the Iraq war, he would have slammed through that easily because of the huge impact favorable to him that came out with, um, with 9-11. Let's go right here on the aisle, gentlemen. And it, it destroyed Tony Blair. 
Thank you. Uh, John Schusler, Air War College. I was curious what your respective uh, studies of public opinion, how they've informed your views of democracy and how functional it is. So uh, I'm just curious to hear from any and all of you on that. It should be a download. Jason, why don't you start us off and pass it well, that, that, Yeah, that's a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> In the, what, yeah. three minutes we have left. Right. <clears throat> um, so so um, my view is that, um, well, it's true that lots of citizens don't pay super close attention um, to politics. Um, I don't think anybody on this panel would, would dispute that. Um, and that there are some decisions that are probably particularly bad, like the um, Iraq war, that um, democracy is fairly responsive. We don't, we don't have lots and lots of really, really bad um, decisions. There are lots of wars that maybe we could have gotten into that we didn't. Um, and most, sadly not all, but most of the wars that we, that we have gotten into have gone reasonably well and we've achieved uh, reasonable aims um, out of them. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm too Pollyannish about, you know, yay, democracy. Um, but I am, you know, I, I, I don't have a sort of, you know, horrible, the, the sky is falling dim view um, that we should just give up on democracy and let's just trust, you know, our elite overlords. John, you don't miss New Coke, do you? <laughs> no, or the Edsel. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, For the record, I, New Coke actually wins in blind taste tests. Is that, well, yes, that's right. So that's why they put it out there. They thought people would buy it, and they didn't do it. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I, I, uh, basically, I think democracy, I've learned democracy is a really crappy form of government. It just happens to be better than the, all the alternatives. Um, and it, it, and uh, certainly the, one, the kind of government I'd like to live under, it's basically self-correcting very clumsily sometimes, as Jason says. Uh, but um, it, uh, uh, it's, it's fun and exciting and interesting. It is appalling that there's so many people out there that disagree with me. Uh, <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't, come, can't, can't, can't conceive of why that should be the case. Uh, but I've learned to live with it. And uh, they, some of them at least have learned to live with me. So. I think we may have consensus on this point. Trevor, do you want to take it and pass it down? Sure. I, yeah, I will say I have a uh, yin-yang answer to that, which is that yeah, I, I'm I'm not full on uh, rah rah as as Jason, but I I, I think democracy works reasonably well uh, in in terms of uh, the opinion uh, foreign policy connection. But the Yang side is that I don't think it's because we're very smart um, or good at reasoning through these things. I think instead we're lucky uh, that we have two political parties that enjoy roughly equal support from both sides of the public, and so when we fight about things, we polarize. We don't come to agreement over Iraq or anything else important, and instead we compromise. And what that does is it keeps us from doing really extreme, stupid stuff very often. So better lucky than good. Uh, yeah, so, so to add to, uh, I guess, a, sort of a, a dimmer note um, is uh, that um, um, I guess it can get really dim. I'm not going to get really dim, but you know, I spent the last 20 years studying public opinion. And I said that so whenever I teach my public opinion classes, I said the two things that I know, one of them, I said that most of the people most of the time don't pay attention to politics. And the second is that people will answer any question that you give them on a survey. Uh, and together, that can, be, that can be very dangerous. You know, sort of if people um, don't think hard about a question, I don't think that people, uh, is there, I, I guess that where I, would, where I do disagree is that I strongly reject the, the cost-benefit framework, I think, 
um, that people can muddle through politics as best they can. And then the, the slightly happier uh, side of that is that if people are given good material to work with, that if, you, if they take cues from politicians um, who have thought hard about an issue and take reasoned, considered positions, uh, if they use other cues to guide them, the book I talk about um, ethnic politics with those other group mechanisms that people use to reason about politics, is that people can do well there. But I think the story there is that uh, people's decisions are only as good as their politicians that they listen to. And so I think that democracy, if we're going to fault democracy, it's not the mass public, it's politicians who that we need to, to talk about. I always like to close events on an anti-elite note, so thank you for that. Uh, um, and this is actually an odd time for a forum for us. It's a little too late for lunch, but I'm Irish, so it's not too early for a glass of wine. Uh, so I hope you'll join us upstairs for some wine and cheese and thank the panel for what I think was a terrific forum. Thank you, guys.